Welcome to our podcast, The Better Build, where we want to explore the world of software engineering leadership and the people who are shaping it. I'm Stefan. I'm the CEO at Mission. I'm going to be your host today. And of course, I'm thrilled you're joining me. Ray, if you're a seasoned software engineer, turn CTO, turn venture capitalist, you have a wealth of experience in the tech industry. And today you're going to share your insight and perspective on the challenges and opportunities that are facing software engineering leaders these days. We'll delve into your journey from your early days of software engineering to your current role as a partner at a VC firm and everything in between. We want to explore some of the most pressing issues in software engineering leadership because you're also a very active mentor and coach in the tech scene and you even created your own framework. So we'll talk about it for sure. But first thing first, you have an impressive background. Tell us about your story, Rafe. Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks a lot for having me. My background, yeah, as you said, software engineer, started in the late 90s in the first dot-com boom, and then entrepreneur during the Web2 wave and the VC now. So just had the privilege to kind of experience all that with slightly different roles. My parents really wanted me to become a doctor, but once I started coding, there was like no turning back. That feeling of building something out of nothing was just too gratifying. And I think my career has followed that theme. Yeah, so started as an engineer. And then during the first dot-com boom, started essentially a side hustle with a very good friend of mine. It was a small website, but it made money. And we sold it. And it was a small exit, but we were like, oh, wow, this is interesting. You can do this professionally. The scene in Toronto is very nascent, and I wanted a larger ecosystem, either New York, Boston, or the West Coast, obviously, the Bay Area. And because I had a very technical background, computer science, math undergrad, and then software engineer, I thought an MBA would be a good thing to do. So I went to Berkeley for my MBA, which also got me to Bay Area into a place where I knew no one. I had no network. So the school was great for that, opened a lot of doors, allowed me to meet a lot of people. And then I had an internship at eBay. I also had an internship at a seed stage VC firm. And then in my second year, I started a company with a classmate. We raised the seed round before we graduated. And that kicked off this next 12, 13 year stretch of being a founder and CTO at different venture-backed companies. Um, and then, yeah, about a year and a half ago, I became a VC. That's yeah. awesome. I'm interested in something because, of course, there's, there's been a lot of transition in your career. But I just want to quote you. It is something you say in your startup CTO handbook. You talk about longevity. And you say, average age of the CTO is 52 years old. But that's all companies in all industries. Average age of startup founder is 34. 45 for successful startups. The takeaway is that you can be a CTO well into your 50s, but the startup CTO job has a shorter shelf life. Was it something you had in mind when you were transitioning? <laughs> the short answer is no. When I first started off as an engineer, and then when I was like, oh, okay, CTO would like to be a CTO. I don't think I thought that long ahead of, oh, is this something I can do into my late 50s or not? But once you spend a little bit of time in the startup ecosystem, you definitely start seeing that. Then for that piece that you saw in the deck, I actually pulled the data and the data supports what I was seeing around me in the ecosystem. So that was a bit of a wake up call. So then the question is, okay, what's next? At some point, I'm not going to have these opportunities. So you either 
stay as an engineering leader or a product leader at larger companies. So that's definitely a possibility, right? You could go to big tech or IBM or whatever and be an engineering leader, run very large teams and ride it into retirement. I never quite played well in large organizations. It's just not a good fit for me. So then VC was always the top of the list because it's one of those things where you still get to have fun and stay in the industry and then it's a rewarding career. Now a question about transitions. Look, sometimes the easy ones are the forced ones, <laughs> right? The company doesn't work out. You fight with your co-founder, you get fired, right? All of those have happened to me. So some of the transitions are the forced ones. Sometimes the harder ones are where the job changes because your organization scales or your market changes. For instance, I was part of the founding team of Blah Blah Digital, not quite like a true startup, but we were essentially a startup funded by this large enterprise, pretty arm's length when we started. I grew that team, my team to 150 people, multiple teams, multiple businesses, and so forth. We grew to well over 100 million revenue, and today it's well over 3 billion. But what my job was the first year versus the fourth year were very different. When you're just you and a few engineers, what that year is like versus you're managing a team of 150, I don't know, 18 different vendors. You got peers on the mothership that you have to play nice with. It's just the job. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens slowly. You just start being less and less happy. And if it's been a good experience, you built these personal connections to the place, to the people. So you're like, I'm never going to leave this place. I can't even think about leaving this place. So it just ends up being this sort of long, painful transition until, and then, hey, and then sometimes the transitions are good ones. The company exits and whatever, and you're ready for the next chapter. So those are the three categories I've seen. The Better Build is brought to you by Mission. Mission is an award-winning network of senior-level software engineers and product builders, backed by a platform that helps engineers continue to learn, grow, and connect. To get your team of fully managed, fully remote, and fully flexible software engineers, or to join our community, visit us at mission.dev. I'm curious about something because I think this is something engineers have in common, is the fact that I think we're all scared to transition being a software engineer, coding every day to managing people. Most of the people don't want yeah. to bother managing people. How did that happen for you? To be honest with you, I think that was always more my strength anyway. When I was more of a full-time engineer, I wasn't the best coder. I'm not going to even pretend that I was. But I think my strengths were... Being able to articulate business requirements in technical terms, being able to simplify complex ideas in simpler terms to the way the audience will comprehend it. So it could be some complex business requirements and complex business ideas that you have to articulate to a technical team or the other way around, a complex technical problem, and you need to articulate it to a business audience sounds cheesy, but it's not bridge, right? So that was always a strength I think I saw quickly. And then there was something about coaching, mentoring, and leading teams and developing people that I got a lot of gratification out of. So it was just something I happened to be okay at and I truly enjoyed. I think I was a little lucky that transition was easier for me. Now, for engineers, for the, yeah, it is a common thing. And this is one of the main topics we talk about with my CTO mentees all the time, because they'll have this great principal or senior engineer, and 
they feel like to progress in their career, they need to become managers or they want to try it out. So the worst case scenario is that's risky, right? Because you may lose a great engineer. It may be that job makes them unhappy or they're not good at that management job and you have to move them. And if you bring them back to an individual contributor role, it could seem like a demotion and that they failed. So I've managed those transitions on my teams before. We've taken the principal engineer and moved into a director role. They didn't like it. We moved them back and we went through it. But it's definitely a sensitive process that you have to manage very closely. It's not one you should avoid because otherwise that great person's just going to find the job they think they want outside. The cost of losing someone is like essentially a year in that role. And if you're losing an experienced engineer that's already onboarded, that's doing really well, you're losing up to a year because they're going to leave. It's going to take you three to six months to fill that seat. It's going to take that person three to six months to onboard and get back to the productivity of the last person. So right there, you're almost at a year of that role actually not producing what it's supposed to produce in your org. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I think that one thing that I think you did very well in your career is that you knew your strengths and you knew very quickly on how to maximize and optimize your strength, which is good. I think it's also totally okay to be a 50 years old, very good software engineer. You want to stay an expert in your field, the industry needs it. We need people with 30 plus year experience in software engineering in very specific stack or in architecture. There's certain areas where, yeah, someone five years out of school is not going to cut it. I think there's this sort of title inflation that's happened in our industry where everyone's a senior engineer after five years. But when you look at the telco industry, where things get really deep, really fast, that's just, you just can't be a senior engineer with five years of experience. Just, you just don't know enough. You haven't seen enough. And maybe with AI and VR and blockchain with these areas that are so different from each other and specialization, we may get back to that. And maybe we have to come up with new titles <laughs> or start to stretch those timelines. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So what's been the most challenging position role you ever had? I had a mentor early on in my career and he'd put me in a new role and something I'd never done it before. And I was so frustrated. I was like, Michael, I'm just feel so lost. And his short response to me was like, Rafe, if you're not feeling lost, you're not challenged. So the way I want to think about this question is the times that I've most felt challenged are probably the times when I felt most lost. It's just when I've taken roles where I know the least, where I'm the newest to. Most of my career, those transitions, a guiding light in terms of how I decided on what the next thing's going to be of the opportunities that were available to me. Just for my personality type, there always had to be something new about it, or maybe at least a couple of things new to it. Either it had to be in like a new industry, new type of company, or new town. I don't know, like something had to be new. I feel like every role had its different sets of challenges. Maybe this is just recency bias, but I feel like my current job is the most challenging because it's pretty freaking different than what I've done the last 15 years. And if I was to name one thing that's so different, it's the lack of the feedback cycle. Is that when you're an operator, when you're an engineer, if you won the day, won the week, won the month, won the quarter, or how well you did, how well you scored. And 
there's a sense of accomplishment or gratification or some feedback. You're like, okay, I did not win this quarter, but hey, here's what I did wrong and I'm going to do better next time. With VC, the feedback cycle is so long. It's so long-term. If we're looking on cash returns, any investment I'm making now, we're talking about six, seven, eight, ten 10 years out, closer to retirement. Especially when we are seeing such market downturns. <laughs> and on top of that, it's also a very lonely job. And that's a good thing. It is an individual contributor job. It doesn't matter how senior of a partner you are. If it's a really big firm, sure, if you're a managing partner or director, you're managing people, but most investing partners don't manage people. Maybe you'll have half an analyst or something, but it's nothing compared to an operating executive and what they have to worry about. So you have to be very self-driven and deal with self-doubt every day. So that is quite different. I really wanted to spend a bit of time talking about what is it to be a venture capitalist, starting by what new skills did you have to develop, if any, and what skills you already have makes you stronger in your role. And also, I think it's important for people uh, listening to us, how do you become a VC? And how did you get there? So when I was doing my MBA, I did an internship at a seed stage firm, essentially most of my second year on a part-time basis. It was me as an associate intern and two partners, small firm. I got a good sense that this business, just watching those experienced partners, and that was great exposure and probably helped me a bit later on as a founder when I was raising money or sitting on boards with VCs, butting heads with them, whatever it may be. Yeah. But I had walked away with the sense of, hey, this is a good career. Like later on, this is a good gig. I could really enjoy doing this. So I had that glimpse and look into it before. And so how it happened for me, the story is about two years ago, within a six-week window, three different stage firms in Canada reached out for an investment role. I don't know if it's because I've just been around long enough and people started thinking, oh, Rafe's getting old enough to be a VC, <laughs> or just the word got around. And it all came with this premise of, oh, we're looking to add an investment partner with a technical background. So maybe it was just all of the CTOs who's had some experience, is more commercially oriented. Maybe that's a narrower base and my name was on a short list. So that's how it happened for me. Although I was talked about, oh, I'd love to be a VC later, but I wasn't always that serious or I always thought it was later. I didn't think it would be now, but that's how it happened. Now, how do you become a VC? Look, I think US and Canada have different sort of DNAs, and I think that's changing a little bit. There's definitely less ex-founders in Canada that are VCs. So the path in Canada so far has been different. Whereas in the US, you see a lot of that. That doesn't mean they're the best ones, by the way. There's a lot to argue that maybe founders don't make the best VCs. But ultimately, you need to raise money or you need to join a firm. That's the cross path. If you had a large exit, then odds of raising a little bit of money for your first fund is doable. Or you build some connections or some name for yourself in a network and the existing firms get interested in you, which is probably the bucket I fit in. Now, there was a second part to your question around, okay, what is a venture capitalist? Yeah, look, I, it's a, I don't have a good sort of answer, but here's a list of things that I think VCs are not. And that's actually like part of the reason why I love the firm that I joined, Mr. Al. We have a whole code of conduct on our website around the 10 don'ts of VCs and goes after some of these stereotypical mistakes that VCs make because our firm, everyone's an ex-founder. But I think one of the golden ones there is, you know, don't forget whose company it is. It's not my company, the VC. It's the founder's company. And I think that's a great guiding principle 
right, around what a VC should not be. So that entails not ordering anyone. You should try to stay out of the operationals as much as possible. So my operational experience is a bit more relevant than maybe most VCs because I'm a rookie VC and it's just a year and a half. But as time passes, that operational experience is becoming less and less relevant. So at some point, my operational guidance will also be less relevant. So with that in mind, I think what VC is, is someone who's serving the founder, who's providing capital, sure, but ultimately serving the founder and the company and being a believer in the founder's vision and hopefully come along for that ride. Yeah, that's super interesting. And do you see your technical background right now as a strength? And I'm not talking about coaching and mentoring. I'm really talking about when you are assessing an investment opportunity. Or do you think sometimes you might be a bit biased? Meaning, do you have more appetite for tech-heavy startup with super strong software engineering team and leadership? Or maybe you're the way around saying, can't build that. So I prefer something very simple with no tech. It's a strength and a weakness. Both are true. It definitely is a strength because I think it allows me to dig deeper into companies and understanding things quicker than others and really get a sense if there's a real meat on the bone and so forth. So that's definitely helps me. However, I do get geeked out by cool tech all the time. And I could get carried away and get really geeked out by a tech and, and fool myself into thinking that's also means it's a great business and investment opportunity. So that's where I think the partnership structure of VC is really strong. As long as you have partners that are different enough for you, where you complement each other. I've invested in four companies since I started. There were two additional ones that I was really excited about that my partners talked me off the edge. Now I look back, I'm like, oh, that was a good call. And they were both super technical, cool things. But ultimately, business model was going to be very challenging or various reasons. So yeah, so both are true. But I think if you pick the right partners who are going to compliment you the right way, it can hopefully slow you down or stop you from making bad calls. Yeah, I agree. It's like in everything, I think having the right balance in partnership. Can yeah. you, you for yeah. some That's like co-founder relationship. Because we engineers are known to be pretty down to earth. And sometimes to be a great VC, you have to be a little crazy. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, there's definitely that. And then the other one is there is definitely sometimes the level of aggression, maybe let's say that you may need as a VC at some point. And that's not natural to engineers, that level of confrontation or asserting yourself and so forth. So that's definitely an area that I personally have had to work with. I see. Yeah. So last question about your new life as a VC. So what are some of the most I'd say exciting, important trends in software engineering you're seeing, you're paying attention to right now. In tech in general, the way we're looking at it is that you look at Web1 that launched and then this last 10, 15 years of this crazy tech way we had, let's call it Web2, there were three main forces among others, but three major ones, definitely cloud, mobile, and social. These three have a huge impact on the world and a lot of the software as we know it, and a lot of the internet got rebuilt. Everything went mobile, everything went on the cloud, social changed the internet. My belief is that we're at the beginning of this next wave of three similar forces that I believe are going to be 
as impactful. One is AI. Obviously, we're seeing that. Now, we've already had a mini AI way, but this is more about commercialization of neural nets and deep learning. Secondly, blockchain. I'm still a believer in that. I know it's not popular to talk about these days, but I think this core idea of digital asset ownership and decentralization is a very, very strong idea. Just taking the asset ownership part, I think there's a future where we're going to look back, oh, we couldn't truly own our digital assets. And we're going to think that was freaking nuts. And third is really around immersive VR and AR. So the future 10, 20 years from now, where all these three trends have matured and a bunch of different applications and new technical realities I think that version of the internet is going to look very different. Those are the very high level themes that I think about. Now, timing on all of those are different. VR, VR feels the furthest out. Maybe blockchain's a little behind that. What chat, GBT, and so all this craziness now is showing that commercialization neural networks is here. It's not imminent. It's here. Now, in terms of software engineering, one thing I was going to ask you is whether or not you were seeing this, because I'm seeing it, is that waterfalls coming back. <laughs> <laughs> right and it's forced if you dug into many of the web3 blockchain development that's usually very waterfall and a lot of large ai development requires a lot more planning because training cycles are so long and so costly so the cost of running a training cycle and then having a bunch of errors in it the cost of a mistake is very high, right? The agile grew because cost of errors were low. In a world like blockchain, you push your smart contract out and there's no rollback and you could lose millions of dollars or you run the model, it takes $5 million to train your model and it takes four weeks and you have a bunch of stuff in there. Anyway, so that was one thing I'm seeing is that you talk to these, some of those younger engineers that are working in these projects and the process they're following is waterfall. They're not calling it, but that is what they're using. Yeah. As for the question, do, do I see it coming back? I would say, I think it never died. Piggy was always there. But the thing, when we're talking about agility versus waterfall, it's never been for me agility versus waterfall. At the end of the day, we have a budget to respect, right? You have all of these forces and constraints around the company. One of them is budget and money. At the end of the day, I think it's called cycles management. It depends on how long your cycle and runway is going to be. At the end of the day, you need to deliver a certain number of features at a certain time. So it's called waterfall. You need to budget management, cycle management, and you can be agile with your software development. But it's not one or the other. To me, it's a combination of both. I think what died was this idea of a software being done. That is fundamentally wrong. That is wrong. Yeah. There's no such thing as done for software. It's just a living thing. And you need to have engineers constantly working on it. So I think that thing died and that's good because that was fundamentally wrong and it didn't work with our software engineering cycle. But you're totally right. You still need to manage a budget. Let's call it an hybrid between agility and waterfall, <laughs> but it's still there. <laughs> I know you're coaching different startup CTOs on leadership, team management, career development, products, and you even build your own framework because I quote you, the job required some unique management frameworks and mental models not appropriately addressed by general management literature. According to your experience, what areas do CTOs need the most help with? Typically, the question marks start to appear, I would say, after a fifth or sixth engineer where the CTO can't just be a team lead anymore. 
Most senior engineers can be a good team lead, right? They can code half the time and manage and lead half the time. And that works okay until probably they have a five or six engineer. And then the wheels start to come off. There's more people issues and so forth. As the team grows, let's say you got 10, 20, 30 people on the team. But the most typical areas where I see that CTO struggle is roles and responsibilities, clarity of roles and responsibilities. And the framework that I use is an age-old one. It's the RACI framework, who's responsible, who's accountable, who's consulted, and who's informed. In management responsibilities or in consulting, this has been around forever. But essentially, it's a matrix. Each row is a job or a decision to be made. And then each column is an R, A, C, or I. And essentially, the cells are who the person is, who's responsible for it, meaning who's going to actually execute this task. Accountable, the easiest way to put it, I hate this way to put it, but essentially whose head's going to roll. And in a lot of situations, the R and the A could be the same person, but sometimes maybe it's not. Then C is, hey, this person consulted, their feedback is heard, but not necessarily incorporated. Okay. So that's a very strong distinction. So that's a clear C. And then I is one way. They're informed of something's going to happen. Their feedback isn't even listened to. And it's very important as organizations grow to have clarity for different tasks, different decisions in your team, who has the R, the A, the C, and the I. Because a lot of the friction and things that slow a team down turns out to be where there's ambiguity on who's the R, who's the A, and the C, and the I. That's where those happen. Good example is, let's say you're going to release something. Is it QA? Is it product? Or is it the business or the CEO or whatever? If that's not clear, every go live, there's going to be some ambiguity. When I go and talk to CTOs and their teams and we're looking at problem areas, a very common thing we see is that the team has grown. When it was small, it was working fine. But as they've grown, they haven't really clearly laid out the responsibilities and accountabilities among their team. People are worried about hurting each other's feelings, or should we include everyone in this decision and things take longer, or certain voices are slowing the process down, although they really shouldn't be heard at that point. And what I typically do is we identify the most ambiguous and uncomfortable high friction areas, and we create a matrix cell by cell, who's the R, who's the A, who's the C and the I, and that goes on Google Drive, Notion, Confluence, whatever you use, and also becomes part of your employee onboarding. You may not agree with it. You may feel like the designer should have more say or the product manager should have a say in this and fine. Yeah, at least you have a foundation, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. The parts that are working well, you don't need to document it. You can if you want for completeness sake, but start with the highest friction. The second one I see right up there is performance management and performance ladder and doing it in a transparent way. A lot of teams don't have defined levels. They don't have defined expectations of what's a level one engineer, what's a level two engineer, what's a senior engineer, what's a principal engineer, how you make those decisions, how people get promoted. There's a sense of lack of transparency among the teams, which creates disgruntled engineers who feel like they've been hard done by. That's causing engineer churn. Or you look at big old consulting organizations where they really professionalized how to manage people and keep them because they're really high valued. They do a great job at this. At Google, 
everyone knows what level engineer expectations are. It's a very detailed rubric. You go to McKinsey, BCG, Bain, large strategy consulting firms or Deloitte, you're going to see the same thing. Very detailed matrix that's very transparent on what the expectations are for different levels. Maybe it's a six-week cycle. Maybe it's a 12-month cycle. A lot of times you walk into a company and there's 30 engineers and nobody knows whose levels are, how those promotions are made, because organically how they happen is people get promoted when they threaten to leave. 40%. I think this is something a lot of entrepreneurs tend to forget. This is what makes you scale as a company. We always yeah. talk about scaling, scaling a software. I think that's not what's important. I don't know if you agree with that. Software is easy to scale. People are not. Yeah, exactly. No, I totally agree. So yeah, those are the top two. I really love what you say. I see you're a framework guy. I'm definitely a framework guy too. What advice do you have for aspiring software engineering leader and entrepreneurs in the tech industry and all this student framework you're talking about, is that on the internet? Do they need a mentor? Do they need to go to an MBA? One of my experiences for about three years pre-MBA was at Deloitte, which okay. is a very large consulting org. They had, this was during the dot-com boom, they had a dot-com group. So they went and hired a bunch of developers and people from startups, and I was one of them, and they created this dot-com group. And I joined Deloitte because I thought, oh, that will make my father finally happy instead of working at a startup. Immigrant father, it was like, why are you starting a, working at a small company? <laughs> so he was very proud. But yeah, it turns out companies that sell people for a living, <laughs> just consulting organizations, and who've done it for a very long time, like well over 100 years, they're very good at managing people and grooming people. I had that early experience at Deloitte where a lot of my ideas got morphed about that. They had a fairly complex, sophisticated structure and framework for that. So then when I went back into startups, I really looked for that. I was like, oh, wow, so that's how it's done. So now the question is, and I adopted the tech and startup scene and product management. But I think for people starting out today, I think there's easier ways to do that is that because there's some great big tech who really perfected this. There's something to be said with getting some exposure for a couple of years at a large organization that is known to do this well. It doesn't have to be Google. There's other companies that do it really well. And then also to work for people who are well-respected and that you respect in the industry so you can learn from them. So if you're an engineer earlier in your career and working at Google or Apple is not for you or is not a possibility for you, that's not the only way. You could seek out some really experienced engineering leaders in your community and go work in their organizations and see how they run it. No better way to learn how Farhan Tavar runs his team. If you work on his team somewhere, you'll see how it's done. You'll get a better sense than I do. So getting some of that exposure and learning these things that are not taught in school on the job, I think that's the shortcut to it. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about you being a mentor, but did you have some mentors that help you along the way? Absolutely. There's been a lot. And at different stages of my career for different purposes. And they've helped me a lot. The senior partner at Deloitte always helped me out. Years later, he wrote my MBA reference letters. Here's what I'll say. I've had mentors where they're well known in the ecosystem, but some of them are polarizing characters. And hey, 
a founder or a VC is polarizing. Surprise, newsflash. <laughs> or someone doing something interesting and different is a polarizing character. That shouldn't be so shocking. Having a good sense of where that mentor's strengths are, where they really have some unique insights, and really leveraging that relationship for those unique insights. I can be a good mentor for people in certain areas. There's a bunch of areas where I'm not the guy. So my perspective on mentorship is it's not just one. You better have a whole series of them because that's how it's been for me. So you could have a mentor for go to market. You could have a mentor for dealing with people. You could have a mentor for your personal finances. But yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants and learning from other people's mistakes is just free advice. Why wouldn't you use it? I guess what I'm trying to say is even if someone's polarizing and you don't agree with everything they say, don't forget what they're really good at as well. Because I think a lot of those polarizing people can have very unique value to add. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Rafe, it was a fantastic time with you today. Thanks for all this really precious advice you gave to our community of engineers. It was great to have you here. This was fun. This was great. We'd like to thank our guest for joining us today. For all of you for tuning in, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening service. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, mission.dev, for more information on our network and platform. See you next episode.